Okay, so we are talking about Kohanim, um, and in preparation of a debate that we're having tonight, you'll see this after, uh, if we put it out there, uh, after the debate, but we're having a debate about Kihuna and trying to understand that that was just something that um, existed at a point in time, and it was a, a good thing then, but it's designed to move um, Judaism towards a more democratic uh, form of worship, or if there's a true value in the practice of having a, a kihuna um, as something that would be an enduring piece of the religion. Um, and Michael Franco, the Gaon, is here to help me make heads or tails of it so that Rabbi Ricky <laughs> doesn't crush me in the debate. Uh-oh. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I think you're going to do great in the debate. That's first of all. But uh, yeah, I, I love the opinion of Rabbi Shama regarding Kehuna in general, even though, you know, some people might look at it and think it's apologetic. His opinion, in a nutshell, is that basically all of Sefer Vayikra is a tremendous revolution in the ancient world, because the way that other nations would take this idea of priesthood was that it was done behind closed doors, it was a very occult practice, and that anybody that was not within the group of the Kohanim had no right to know about it. And that was part of giving the Kohanim that tremendous amount of power that was really unparalleled in the ancient world. And then when the Torah came along and wanted to democratize things, and wanted to show people that the connection to God, like, uh, and here's to quote another person, Rabbi Jose Faud says that we're not, in, according to the Torah, we don't live in a vertical society. We live in a horizontal society where everybody has an equal access to Bore Olam. So therefore, you don't need to go to the shaman or the kohen or whoever it is above you in order to reach God. So I think just like with Korbanot, the Torah couldn't, like Karambam says, it's impossible to go from one extreme to another overnight. The Torah says with Kehuna, you know what, we'll keep Kehuna to some degree, but we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to be able to get rid of it all at once. So we'll just, you know, make small strides here and there by demystifying, as Rabbi Shama says, demystifying what's going on in there. And that's going to allow us to progress towards less power for the Kohanim and more power to the people. Gotcha. Okay, so without getting uh, baited or sidetracked into debating the role of the entire Sefer Vayikra and the, uh, <laughs> the movement, I guess just to zero in on uh, the movement away from that ancient practice, just to zero in on uh, the part that um, where I want to, we're going to be arguing about it, the Kohanim, um, even within that framework, even if we accept some of those premises, I don't think that we need to conclude that the Kehuna as a whole is an institution that we would do away with, or that the idea that one tribe in particular should be chosen um, is something that needs to uh, be completely done away with. Um, you know, I think, and that's hopefully what the debate's going to be. I mean, I don't know if that's what I was just saying, that opinion, because that's going to be yeah. my opinion in the debate. Um, <laughs> But uh, what are your thoughts specifically about the Kimuna? I think that giving any group of people power in any circumstance is always dangerous. And I think it's even more dangerous when it's not necessarily earned. I think even power that is earned is very dangerous to give to anybody. So you know, all the more so giving power to people who don't necessarily deserve it, quote unquote, that's extremely dangerous. Um, whether or not it's going to pan out in corruption, history will tell. Wow. I, I didn't even uh, anticipate having to encounter such a, a challenging uh, take. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh no. But uh, okay, I hear that. Is the Kiluna actually giving power? I think it's given as much power as the people believe in its power. That's why today, for example, there is very little power to Kiluna, even though we, we do give you guys, you know, uh, Zimun, and we give you guys the first Aliyah. Okay, you know, that's not. Uh, Practically, it's not such a big deal because of the way society is built. But in the ancient world, because people had certain beliefs and because we were able to give Tiruman Ma'asir and there was worshiping in the temple, practically there was a lot of stuff that was able to be, you know, uh, taken up by the Kohanim in terms of gaining more power and gaining more traction within the nation. And I think that it really has a lot to do with the beliefs of the people. If the people believe that the Kohanim and their role is extremely important for whatever purpose uh, within the nation, whether it's to get, get us forgiveness from God, that's the amount of power that they have. It's given by the agreement and the accord of the people. Interesting. So the, the question that's going to keep coming up is if we conflate the Kehuna and the rabbinate. Um, if we see the modern day rabbinate as an extension of the Kehuna, in which case it's already proof that we've disregarded the practice of uh, choosing Kehuna based on its tribe. Um, how yeah. much do you think that the rabbinate and the kehuna are synonymous of one another? The reason I would be very, uh, you know, um, hesitant about making that comparison Reticent. because, yeah, is, is because specifically there's a midrash that says that God gave keter melucha to bene David and he gave keter kehuna to bene Levi and keter Torah to all of Am Yisrael and the Talmud Torah, like another saying, Keneged Kulam, it's kind of the overriding thing. So when you're talking about Torah, because it's a meritocracy, I think that immediately adds uh, a layer of very big difference between the two. Now, like I said earlier, that doesn't matter because anytime you get any kind of power, there is the, the, the possibility of corruption, even though it's less possible because rabbinates are, are not necessarily dynastic. Of course, there's going to be a lot more of an issue when they become dynastic, which we have seen. Um, but at the end of the day, I think because it's a democracy, because it's a meritocracy, that adds a layer of, you know, uh, fairness for the people. And uh, it, it kind of prevents uh, abuse of power. Just to give a Tanakh example, you look at Moshe Rabbeinu. He was a person with tremendous influence, really. I wouldn't even call it power. And his children have basically no say in anything that happens. He's, they're basically not even within the nation. You look at Shemuel Hanavi. His children uh, were purportedly supposed to take over from him. And they end up not going in his path. And that's it. The people say, we don't want this. We want a king. So I think the second you take away that dynastic element, there's a lot less of an issue for me. Interesting. Okay, now I think people would squirm at this line of argumentation, firstly, because of its uh, seeming to be a disharmony with the text, you know, and uh, it requires reading the text as uh, in a point in time and not something that's uh, going to be true eternally. And also, even that, it seems to, to be disingenuous to read, to read it that way uh, from the modern eye. Maybe that's just because we're not trained to read it that way. You know, when you look at the details that they go into the Begadim of the Kohen, when you look at the um, details about the services, and when you look at the fact that they chose the Kohanim specifically, and the whole, uh, you know, the whole build up to that, when Pinchas 
gets the berit of shalom, that the kohanim are instructed to have shalom. It seems to be disingenuous to the text. And I think it loses, uh, it destroys something that's designed to be maintained this family um, by democratizing it. In the same way um, that if we looked at Judaism and we said, oh, Judaism should be democratized. Anyone can reach God. You know, there's not a special nation, Mamlechet Kohanim, that is designed to reach God that is different, that's Mugdal, that's Kadosh, that has special laws on them, like the Kohanim very much do, right? It's not enough to say that. Everyone could achieve it. You know, I think there is a temptation to even argue that uh, these days. And I think there, you and I maybe would draw a line and we would say, no, nah, you know, there is a value. We see the value of keeping someone um, in offense and saying they are dedicated to doing this and setting aside the task. And perhaps um, when we take away the kemuna this way, even if it's just, all this is theoretical anyway, we're not taking away the kemuna, we're imagining a future and arguing about whether in the future we're gonna return to the ancient practice, which obviously we won't, it will be a variation of that practice. Um, but um, maybe in our uh, theoretical deconstruction of the kemuna, we lose this beautiful aspect of the kemuna. And instead of just focusing on that and saying, no, there was a family, they were told this is what they had to do. They couldn't have any land. Couldn't have any land. You could talk about all the power in the world, but they were stripped of their land. Land is power. These people are never going to really be powerful, mm -hmm. right? And that's beautiful. And they're, they're forced to not own land, which is almost, uh, you know, no one would now opt to not own land. We had people that did that, right? The, the beatniks, the hippies, and they were looked at so poorly because why would they choose that? But if they were forced not to have land, okay, now they're forced. And they're from the beginning told that this is what they need to study. That way they specialize, right? We spoke a lot about this morning um, when a rabbi, you know, what do you do with the brightest student? Do you push him to be a rabbi as a society? Do you push him to be a doctor as a society? Um, and you always have that debate and that dilemma, but here you don't run into that dilemma. He's told what he needs to do. So there'll be some smart people within the community and some without. There is some genetic component, I would think, um, to it. It is genetically like something to be a Jew, I would say, in the same way that it is genetically like something to be a Kohen. You're from this specific lineage. And I know my grandfather, he, it's like something to be a Kish and an Abraham. And I don't know how long it'll be like something to be that thousands of years into the future, but it is. You know, are we losing all of those values when we deconstruct and try to move away from that and focus on this dynastic component that we're afraid of, instead of saying, let's just imagine what it would be like to have a kimuna like that. And when we go in and imagine that and we talk about it and we glorify it, we could see a lot of the benefits. I love the points you made. I think they're really spot on. And I think your, one of your best points was the one regarding Bnei Yisrael, so being uh, a mamlechet koanim begoy kadosh. And it reminds me of Rabbi Hittery's speech from last year, he, he mentions that the head of the reform movement got up and said to all of his congregants or whoever it was at the, uh, that meeting, and he said, go out and marry non-Jews and, you know, go be an Orla Goim in that way, literally intermarry into the world. And that's such a crazy point of view, because in order to be an Orla Goim, you have to be a Goy, you have to be a nation, you have to actually have a, a set group of people who are willing and able to be a group who could spread the message. And if there's no group, there's no message to be spread. But I have contemplated that idea on your side that maybe the spreading that there, there have been Jews who are keeping the torch lit 
and, and that goes all the way to the most Haredi who are guarding it with their lives to people who are more liberal and willing to explore the boundaries. And then there are people who are, like you said, through intermarriage, um, spreading the message. And, I, you know, there, I think, I, I don't know if I would want to say that there is a role for that, but I could understand that point of view as well, I guess. But yeah. allowing that doesn't preclude also allowing the Kohanim, as the, the Mamleche Kohanim, the people that want to hold the torch in that way, um, that were given it by family. And we'll have, because that's what we have it, through birthright. You know, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov. It's through birthright. Yes, birthright does matter. We could insist that birthright matters. If we choose for birthright to matter, then it matters. If we view Avodat Hashem as our birthright, that will get us farther than someone who doesn't view Avodat Hashem as their birthright. I, I definitely agree. And I think, I think that the idea of a birthright is extremely important. But I think the, the, the analogy between Am Yisrael as a nation for the world and the Kohanim as a people for the nation, I think it, it is limited. Like you, you can't fully make that comparison because at the end of the day, within the unit of Am Yisrael, the whole message is supposed to be you could connect to me no matter what. And like, just like Kanambam's point of everything being, you know, designed by God to move us towards a certain spot. I think that just makes sense. I know it might be difficult for people to hear, but at the end of the day, God wants progress out of us. He, time is not cyclical according to the Torah. Time doesn't have to repeat itself. Time is moving towards a certain goal. So if that's the second, yeah, say it again. You can connect to God no matter what, but... Yes. Okay. But there's, there's an advantage to, we, we are all equal, but some of us have intellectual predilections. Some of us have musical, musical predilections. Some of us have a propensity towards speaking with others and being so eloquent. Some of us are very kind. And we're allowed to identify um, differences and hold on to differences. We are not all going to do the same thing. The Quran is not the only one who connects to God. He's the only yes. one commanded to abandon his lot in life to connect to God. We don't need to do that to everyone. In the same way, the Jew is the only one commanded to abandon his lot in life to, to, to choose this path. Whereas the non-Jew, he could choose to connect to God. We would never say Hasushalom that he can't. But the goal, you're forgetting one thing, and that is that the goal of the entire corpus of the Tanakh is like Yeshayah says, and they'll, they'll come to Yerushalayim and they'll say, um, we want to learn your ways we, let, teach us we want to be like you and I think that's something that is supposed to happen eventually and it seems like a step in the, in the wrong direction if we keep focusing on these dynastic groups and we stop focusing on this democratization of everybody being a scholar and everybody being a Kohen type of figure I know there is a, a tremendous benefit to that but I think that was more in the ancient world where it had a real benefit just because of practical reasons. But I think in today's day and age, everybody should get a college education. Everybody well, should we go. Take a group? Could we take a group, Mike, and say you guys are, com are commanded to do more. It's your lineage to do even more. In the same way that the Jew, he doesn't have, well, the non-Jew also should follow the mitzvah. They should love their neighbor. If they see their neighbors hamor under a load, they should, they should azov ta azov imor. They should also give the corners of their field. They should. It would be beautiful for them. It would help them. But that doesn't mean you have to go to the Jew and say, uh, you have to relinquish it in order for him to have the ability to have it. 
it doesn't mean that the Kohanim need to look at everyone else and be um, know-it-all and have any disdain for them or, or wave it in their face. It just means that they are the ones with the burden thrust on their shoulders. You're right. So in an ideal world, I would agree. And I would think that it should be the case. But I think that power is so corrosive and it, it so easily corrupts people that I would be personally against it. Just from looking at history and seeing how much it's been a problem. And I would draw the same line to, to Melucha. Melucha, okay, there's a debate about whether or not God really wanted it. God was really unhappy when they asked for it. At the end of the day, it worked for a little bit for a certain amount of time. But the world itself, world history and the Tanakh history moved us away from that way of being. And I think the same thing happened with Keuna. It just kind of ran its course when it was useful. And then when it stopped being so useful, when it actually started being of, uh, you know, not uh, being started being deleterious, that's when other, th other types of leadership like the rabbinate started stepping in. And it proved, I think it's just like an evolutionary thing. It's survival of what works, you know? Right, so, so people view that religion no longer has a place. So and that, that it is no longer useful. Change its MO. Religion had to change from an explanation of how things work and what's happening to why is it happening. So I have no problem with reading the Tanakh and realizing that people ascribed a lot of what was going on to these mystical or spiritual reasons. But I think in today's day and age, that's not necessarily what God wants. Because we have science to explain how things work and, what, and what's going on, I think we need religion to take the role that it was always supposed to take which is why, do, why are we here? What is our purpose and how do we be better people? You know, so I, I don't think- give a formula of behaviors. Say it again? Also gives a, it also does give a formula of behaviors that it insists that you follow as guidebook that you should hang on to the behavior even in the absence of the, uh, the reason with hope that the behavior itself uh, retains something that our intellects can't, that our, our intellects could swing wildly. I mean, you see that with science, like in, in Nazi Germany, the place where there was uh, tons of science, somehow it got contorted in such an odd uh, circle. So, but even the actions that the Torah is asking us to do are not set in stone. That's why we have the Torah Shabbat Peh, we have the Halakha. When the death penalty no longer was applicable, they completely blotted that out of existence, which is, I think, a testament to what the Torah is. The Torah is not a static document. It's a living work, and it's supposed to be something that we evolve with as society evolves, which is what God wants. God wants right. society to evolve. Right. So I guess the, the key point is that I'm not, I'm not uh, arguing that we should reinstitute Keuna in that form, right? And I don't think anyone is. I'm just arguing that in our imagination, when we think of utopia, we could think of the forward-facing utopia. Um, that we could build with our science and our ideas and, uh, and our modern way of thinking. We could also look backwards at a different kind of utopia and glorify the Kiwuna in our mind and, uh, and, and think about what it would be like to family, you know, and, and uh, spend time in that model as well. Um, it's not going to mean that we're, we're going to come running back. We're not going to move back that direction. No one's, uh, you know, that's just not a practical, practical in reality, whether it even is utopian or not is besides the point. Right. But at least to spend time instead of spending all of our time arguing away from it, especially when I hear the forces of liberal um, argumentation as uh, sometimes stripping, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I guess is the point. So what is the bath, what is the baby in this form of Kiruna that we should think about? The values that someone would give up everything to live 
you know, he couldn't pursue any financial well-being. He had to, everything was the gifts from the, the other people, you know. Every day he'd go to the temple and he would serve God and he would do these basic rituals. Well, the purpose for them was just to connect with God. There was no, uh, nothing else, you know, and he would do them with such meticulous care. And, uh, and imagine a Sadiq now who would serve God with as meticulous care. And perhaps that looks very different now. It does look very different now, but it's still yeah. uh, a something that we could uh, spend more time thinking about the positives of it, I guess. Yes, I think that's a great point. I, I see that with uh, a lot of the liberal argumentation like you're talking about. They could criticize America and, and Judeo-Christian values as long as they want to, but that's what built these roads. That's what built the society. That's what gives us air conditioner. All the values that we have, really very many of them derived from that and from even the Greeks and the Romans. But at the end of the day, you have to appreciate where you came from and what laid the groundwork for where you are. But it's about balancing the tradition with the progress. And I think you could allow tradition to guide your progress. So like you're talking about, the tradition that we have is about Kohanim and is about a, a type of specific group of people who are dedicated to something. The progress that we've made has been, no longer is it the Kehuna who is gonna be which is supposed to be one of their fundamental purposes is to be teachers like you are. So we, we kind of moved that away from just Kohanim to anybody who was meriting to be a good teacher. And I think that's a beautiful thing. We took the tradition of teaching and of having a group of teachers and we took it away from one clan, where, which is what the Torah had sanctioned. And now we moved it towards anybody who was fit to be a teacher. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's worth noticing how, how it evolved and what worked and what the process was like. Yeah, I hear that. Great. Um, I had something that, I, that, I, that came to me, but slipped my mind. Um, Backtrap one step. What was the step before this? Do you remember? The step before this was something you said? No, something you said, like the thing right before that. Mm -hmm. Noticing the process. Um, but also the liberal oh, argumentation yeah. stuff. The fact oh, that the liberals oh, okay, are... Yeah, that the liberal argumentation is sometimes taking out... Yeah, they're sometimes... All right, I don't remember it. I guess the point is, yes, yeah, so you have the teachers, you're, you're moving it to a lot of different people, which is great. Um, I don't know. All right, I lost that train. Fine, right. I think we could probably wrap before I got confused. <laughs> I'll just chop. That's funny. Yeah, oh, no, I think at the end of the day... Oh, oh I have it, I have it. We'll cut it. We're going to cut this. Okay. No problem. The only pushback that I have is that I feel like we've... Uh, so we're making a lot of effort to demystify education, right? And to almost desanctify. You know, you used to have something like reverence, and now you don't, you don't want reverence. Reverence is almost like a curse word to revere something, to worship it. You know, and you used to have, hold a rabbi or a teacher with reverence, and now, no, you don't. Um, you have, uh, what's the name of that play? Uh, a Book of Mormon. Mm, it's yes. irreverent, you know, it's an irreverent take. And that's like a great thing, irreverent, ah, irreverent. It's a breath of fresh air because we lived under Christian tyranny of their reverence, right? Yeah. Reverence became such a bad thing. They, they molest kids with their reverence and their tremendous abuse of powers, you know? So irreverence has grown in popularity, very, very important, right? Yeah. Um, but I do find that irreverence is also damaging. And, and the, the desire to, to strip down the kihuna comes with the same forces of irre irreverence. I think that the rabbis now, um, at least in our community, you know, the, the modern ones, don't have enough authority to teach properly. They don't have enough respect to teach properly. They're asked to 
fight for their jobs, make sure people that will finance them, keep them in the right place, politic all day, because there's no reverence to their power. They don't have enough power. They can't even teach properly because they have to contort themselves in all kinds of directions um, just to support themselves. So I think that it, it, always when we uh, take away reverence, which is important in a certain sense, and it has been important, especially in light of what Christians did uh, and other abuses of religious power, um, we also lose something. I guess that's the point. And I'm, I'm just concerned about yes. uh, uh, what we could be losing. I'm trying to look up. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a beautiful thing, a beautiful podcast about this, this exact topic. Um, generous, generous orthodoxy, he calls it, where you're able to uh, balance orthodoxy with the generosity of progress. And he talks about this, uh, you know, this one girl who, when they were trying to, I think it was the name of the college, John Jay, they were, they were trying to change the name of it because of things that he had done. And she went up there and she said, everyone is a racist and all that. And she clearly went a little too far with that. And then he gives another example of people being too traditional. And there's, there's a sweet spot there. And I, I always love to point to Abraham Avinu. Abraham was the guy that it says, they went into Haran and they settled there. That's when he was with, with his father. But then after his father dies, so it's clearly paralleling his father's journey. So it's like, I don't understand. The Midrash says he was an iconoclast. And this Torah is telling me, just straight out, he's continuing his dad's journey. They, his dad intended to get to the promised land and he never made it. Ah, so that's the key. He intended to go to the promised land, but he settled in Haran. He purposely chose not to go to the promised land. And that's what, you know, really became emblematic of who he was. And Abraham was the guy who took the tradition from his father and allowed that to guide the progress that he made. He took the leap that his father was too afraid to make. So I think the tradition of our fathers is Kehuna. I think it's a beautiful tradition. I think it's a tradition of teaching. I think it's a group of people who are dedicated to something. But I think that the leap we might be too afraid to make is to really make everyone, our whole nation, Mamlechet Kohanim. And eventually the leap should be to get the entire world on, on, on board with that. And obviously these are aspirations for the distant future, but I think it's extremely beneficial that we no longer have a specific clan doing that, just like there's no milucha. That's I love that. I love that. But in the meanwhile, while we're moving towards that democratization, must we say that there is no rabbis? Um, and teach each man to think for himself and not rely at all on a rabbi, even though we agree that's the ideal. Each man should be his own rabbi. Each man right. needs to go pray to Hashem and ask the questions himself and learn the sources. Do we still say that it's not something that you need to specialize in to attain? I think you're absolutely right. I think with the time being, we need to have people who do specialize and other people who are not capable right now. But I think we should still have our eyes on the prize and know where we want to get to. So, you know, I have no problem with giving people power as long as they're chosen in the right way, as long as they earn it, as long as it's a system of checks and balances. I think that was one of the biggest problems with the kehuna, is that it became very clear very quickly that because it wasn't earned and because there was, there was really no check on their power uh, for many years and that there was so much abuse of it, that was my, that's my real problem. I don't have a problem yeah, with it. Yeah, but now, now the money is the... Now the money is the is yes. the new thing is the new power and that's something that you earn, but but now it just goes there. That's basically all it is. Everything has to chase the dollar. 
in, in this yep. new system. You know, whereas in the and old system, yeah, you might have given it to the Kohanim on, right. Now, dollars might be more earned than being born into Shebet Levi, into Kiwanasa. Maybe we even view that as an improvement. But uh, I'm, I'm not know. even talking about that. I'm not saying for the people in general. I'm saying a meritocracy for getting power uh, in terms of being in that group. So in order to be a rabbi, you can't really buy yourself into being a rabbi. At least right now you can't, which is thank God. You really have to be a Talmud Hacham. Uh, and when you are a rabbi, yes, you do have more power if you have the money guys supporting you, which I think is a bit of a problem. But I think the masses really do see through that. And if the rabbi is not saying anything of real substance, they're just not going to be attracted to what he has to say. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are. If you have the right message, I think that that will win out to, if, if, it's, if it's going to be easily received by the people. So I think that the money like that. factor is not as much of an issue. But that's not true that the, the right message wins out. I mean, because just look at, look at numbers and communities and, and of all the rabbis that work, you know, and, and who the rabbis are that amass massive followings and who the ones are that it's not the case that it's always about their contact with truth. I don't know what it is about their message that works. Even look at marketing is what I always say. Okay, so marketing is psychologically hacking the people's brains and uh, figuring out exactly what to say that they want to hear. You could convince them that drinking Coke is the thing, the path to the afterlife. And you have yeah. a Coke ad where they drink it and then they become Santa Claus-like, you know, and you see those ads. It's not the case that, that the people will always understand. And I think that by, uh, that it, whatever systems you replace, um, giving the power, the power always goes to someone. And there's different ways that the power can be won. And I don't see that in America, we have found a way to give power to the right people at all. Um, or in American Jewry, much closer than in, in America, but we hold a lot of the flaws of America uh, being coasted there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we have not found a, a really good solution. And I think you're right that the people who have the biggest followings are not the ones who necessarily have the truth on their side. But I don't even, uh, this might sound very postmodern, but even if you look at one of these rabbis with a tremendous following and you look at his stuff and you say, this guy is just selling them absolute nonsense. Well, some of his stuff might be pretty nonsensical from your perspective, but I think a lot of what that rabbi might be saying really does help these people in a very practical way. So even though it's not absolute truth like you would think about it, these people are so connected to Torah and so connected to God and they lead their lives in a better way because of what this guy is saying, even though what he's saying... It's not might true, but look at who people watch on YouTube, PewDiePie or something. He's mm -hmm. the new rabbi. He's the guy who they're, you know, whoever these guys are on YouTube, right? Whatever they're, whoever they're watching on Instagram, whoever they follow and deify, you know, it's usually chefs or, uh, you know, fashion things. It's not the case that, you know, the, the eyes don't find the right place. So you could say he's giving them truth. The truth is they like to eat. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. They do. They have an evolutionary need to eat. Yeah, that's true. Or I always say this, inappropriate sites, that's the most watched site, right? That's what people uh, choose to, to turn their faces towards. That's so true. Also, your, people need to have intercourse. What's, so you, how does having a group of people solve this issue? Because now they're protected. They don't have to, they don't, it's not based on what the people like. It's not a democracy. It's not a vote of who, of uh, based on what the people listen. That's all about marketing. You can market to sell someone anything. So now the rabbis become marketers. The politicians become marketers. All the politician tries to do is get reelected. He's a showman. He's a magician designed to get reelected. What he actually does is, is almost irrelevant. 
you know, so that's what we create. So we create a nation of marketers. To getting rid of the meritocracy, getting rid of the popularity contest, because that takes away the pressure to, to, con to conform, you know, conform to what the people are looking for and what the people want to hear. I think that is a phenomenal point. I think, and I never even thought of that. I never realized that meritocracy could have that negative side effect because maybe the people don't even know what's good for them. And maybe what the masses are chasing after is really not the right thing. So now the Sadiq, the Sadiq of our generation, the artist, he, he writes the movies. He has the skill to, to tap into creativity and show people things, is being hired as a pawn of a Pepsi or cigarette commercial. So the preacher is now sells cigarettes. You know, the, he runs the ad agency. That's Mad Men, Don Draper is the rat, you know? And that's what, we, that's what we've created here. Uh, and it's really, I think when you, when you uh, say no, these are the people that's it it's their job you know there's some value to it now i also you get bureaucracy and you get all the, the rust and rot and dishonesty i can't help but agree i can't help but agree but i don't i don't know what to do about the problem of them becoming corrupt i think in today's day and age it actually might be more beneficial to have a group like Kohanim because they're they probably wouldn't be as easily corrupted as as in the ancient world because just practically, they wouldn't have as much power. So maybe there would be a benefit to that, and it would offset the popularity context, contest people that are, that are taking over today. But I still think that there needs to be a set of checks and balances. Like in the ancient world, you had the Milucha, you had the Kewana, you had the Nebuah, and they kind of offset each other to some degree. But I think that's really the key, is figuring out where the territory of one ends and where the territory of another one begins. So and here's my last point by deifying something in the past, which we've clearly choose, chosen to move away from. Okay, so it's, we know we're not going back. You know, there's a one-way street that is our pro human progress. Sometimes we'll make a deviation, but for the most part, we, we, you, could chase a you could trace a trajectory, right? Like you said, by pinning truth in the past, what it demands you to do is to constantly look at the progress and, and understand what's wrong with it. Because now you could look at the American thing and say, I don't know, is this so good? We moved away from this and we thought it was progress, but look at, look at, what, look at our new consequences. It doesn't mean that it's going to take you back there. It's just in a, a way of keeping progress slow because we're tumbling forward anyway as it is and of properly and it's a lens to get, let you to look at what is more critically. Interesting. I think that's perfectly put. I think that's exactly it. <laughs> nice. All right. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you're, you're more prepared than ever for tonight. <laughs> uh, you, you, it was very helpful. Thank you, Mike. Um, I think we, we flushed out a lot of good points. Unbelievable. That was great. We should